What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. My philosophy is that the human condition is everybody is born with incredible potential. And unfortunately, the world rarely lets you realize your full potential. And so Strava should be a place where you can do your best work. It should be the place where we have removed the constraints on your potential. We've enabled you to do more than you ever felt possible. Do we get it right every time? I, no, I'm sure we don't, but we strive to do it. We strive for that kind of an experience. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode Take Care of Your People. When Michael Horvath, the co founder and CEO of Strava, meets with employees, he doesn't just start saying what he's thinking. Instead, the first thing out of his mouth is What's on your mind? His company, Strava, makes an app that serves more than 100 million athletes to help motivate their movement, connect them with a community, and improve their safety. And these days, it's a company of more than 400 people, which has both informed and necessitated Michael's leadership style, which is a lot about listening and letting employees grow into their passions and skills. I spoke with Michael about his approach to finding the genius potential in every employee, and also his fascinating years-long quest to create a community for athletes to support one another, and how after a false start that yielded a totally different success, it finally came together. We also talked about how Strava avoids the kind of manipulation of other social media companies, and how he navigated personally a painful loss while his company grew. Long before Michael was running Strava and gaining almost 2 million users a month, he was a suburban kid with an interest in scalable systems. I had a paper route. Many kids had a paper route back when kids had paper routes. But what I remember is also I took on other people's paper routes, like my brother's, uh, and I would like take that on and you know run that business because it would scale better, right? You know, if you were doing delivering the paper, why not deliver papers for somebody else at the same time? And it would be uh, be a more uh, more efficient system. The summer before my senior year, I just started a company that power washed houses. It was called Scrubbers Power Wash Houses and Boats. And the beauty was I rented the, the power washing machine from an equipment rental company for the day. If I had a client that day, very low capital. And it was actually a really turned out to be a really great way to uh, make some money, but also understand that the key thing to a business is getting the customers to even find you uh, back in the days before the internet. So those were some early clues. And then, uh, you know, that's when I did not make any sense that I went off and got a PhD in economics and became a professor. <laughs> I was like, why did I do that? Right, right. But during college um, is is when you made some key relationships that would go on to form your business life. Is that right? Yeah. It, so I met Mark Ganey, my co-founder at Strava, we had started a previous software company called Kana Software together. We met last century rowing on the crew team. Neither of us had rowed before. We we both walked onto the team and and that that relationship is what created, you know, the possibility I think for me to be truly be an entrepreneur at, at a large scale 
both with Kana and then now with Strava. Uh, something I just look back on is like, um, you know, one of those uh, fateful decisions to to join the crew team, having never done it before. And we turned that into what drove us to start Strava in the first place was just wanting to recreate that feeling of being on a team. The seedling kind of the ideas of Strava began long before Strava, the company, right? I'd love for you to talk about that, how the company sort of had a, it was an idea long before it was a company, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah so I graduated from college in 1988. And yes, everyone can do the math of how old that means I am. And Mark is 1990. By 1994, I am now an assistant professor at Stanford University, and Mark is working in venture capital in Palo Alto. And there's this thing called the internet. It was brand new back then. We had no idea kind of what this was going to mean for us, but we would get together at my office at Stanford and talk about, like, what what's this, you know, what is this going to change in our lives uh, professionally or personally? Probably it was, you know, we got together at my office instead of Mark's because I actually had an internet connection straight into my office. We started to ask ourselves this question, like, what, well, what will this technology enable for us? Mark was probably much more interested in starting something. I was more curious from, you know, just from a sense of, like, paying attention to what's going on in, in the economy and the world as a, a pretty young, newly minted academic economist. But what we uh, honed in on was like, well, if it's going to solve a problem we care about, how can we get that team back? We, we graduated from college. We, we had this ex- incredible experience rowing um, on the crew team together. And, and what that, that experience was all about was the people, the places that we would travel to and the experiences we had in those places. But the people that motivated us to be active. And, and frankly, you know, like when you're, you're using up a lot of your time to train, you have to be even more efficient to get all your schoolwork done and have, you know, have your friendships. And so we, we found that that experience of being active uh, on the team, we were kind of better people all around and we wanted that back in our lives. And so could we create the, the virtual locker room using the internet? That was the question we had in 1995. And we went out and tried to you know, get some interest in this idea. We talked to a few website development companies. That was the kind of the early days of the internet. There were companies that would develop websites for you. You didn't have the plug and play kind of opportunities that you have now with with companies like Squarespace, where you can create your own website in minutes. Um, uh, and these website development companies, they looked at this and they said, wait a minute, you want people to share personal information about themselves with complete strangers on the internet? I don't think that's going to happen. And how are they going to track a workout? Uh, we had no answers for these questions, and they they convinced us it was a really bad idea, and it, it probably was in 1995. But that was the earliest version of Strava. There was a Strava, it was called Kana back then, and today, you know, all sorts of new technologies enable what Strava is today. And by 2008, 2009, it was the time to start the company, and and we were ready to do it. Yeah, it's so interesting because um, you know I hear I've heard many entrepreneurs say that their their first business maybe could have been a Facebook group, and therefore it wasn't a real business, and they kind of had to learn the hard way. Now, there was not even Facebook for this thing that that part of it could have been a Facebook group, perhaps, at that point. But you started a company in the interim. Can you tell me what that taught you and what that company's growth was like during those few years? Yeah, so when we were told that, you know, the virtual locker room was a bad idea, the same web development company uh, called Cedro Group said, if you want to if you want a problem to solve, we're building websites for these companies like K2 Skis and Trek Bicycles. And they like the website. They call us up about two weeks later after we launch and they say, great website, but can you turn off 
the contact us button. We're getting all these emails from our customers. We can't handle all the volume of email we're getting directly from our customers. Uh, they were used to having their customers interact with the retail store uh, when they had a problem. They said, you know, maybe you could build some systems to help companies with customer relationship management online. And we were like, we were two guys looking for a problem to solve. If it wasn't going to be the virtual locker room, maybe it was going to be something else that would be in demand. And we started that company, uh, became known as Kana Communications, then Kana Software. 1995 to 1999, it was a three and a half year journey from just completely getting the idea to taking the company public. Wow, that's so fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so fast. And, you know, today I think capital is even more available. So it was it was really just the, that there was such a rush in that those days because the internet was relatively new from a commercial perspective. Uh, there was a rush to sort of stake out a claim, you know, become the leader in a space was kind of the, kind of the goal for at, at any point uh, for, for any company. Less clear, you know, is your business sustainable? Is it, does it generate profits and things like that? It was just a focus on moving as quickly as possible. So, and then by 2000, I, you know, we were both kind of out by choice. You know, I went back mm. to teaching and Mark um, decided he didn't want to run a thousand person company and had found another person to take over the CEO role and really felt like he wanted to uh, explore some new opportunities. So we were both out of that. It was four years in five years in total before we were kind of done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. What's what's one moment in time during that journey, whatever you want to call it, that that you look back and think, I don't want to relive that. I would never do that again. Well, I mean, maybe the the first step is is to say, you know, the the goal of growth for growth's sake is just a mistake. It's um, you really have to think what parts of the bus come off, you know, as you start to go move faster and faster. And in Kana's case, it grew to about 2,000 people through a bunch of acquisitions. And then start, it's been, you know, it's probably still around in some shape or form, but it's been getting smaller and smaller ever since. I think that that was a real learning moment for us was, and really informed us as we started Strava was, we wanted to create something that was going to be here for the long run. We wanted to focus on building for the customer, focus on their needs, get everyone else involved, investors, the employees, any stakeholder in the company should be motivated by that same mission to serve our customer. And in this case, for, for Strava, it's the athlete. It's someone who wants to be active. Anyone who sweats is an athlete. And uh, we believe there are a billion people who wake up every day wanting to be active, and we want to serve them. We want to help them lead a more meaningful life with more adventure and fun. And that's been there since the very beginning of Strava. So we carried that like unfinished business in Kana forward. And when we were starting Strava, we said we got together and sort of shaped that as the foundation of the mission for Strava is to be here for the very long run, create something that the customer understands is built for them, is there to support them. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was just going to ask where the how the idea came back in its new form. Where did the name come from, the new name? Yeah, so Strava is from the Swedish word strava, which it means to strive. I'm Swedish. Uh, it was my first language. Um, ah, great. My dad is as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> did you grow up speaking Swedish? I did not. Um, and he doesn't know it very well, but he is known as Mufa to my kids. So. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so we um, we grew up speaking Swedish in the house, um, even though we lived in the States. My mom and three sisters spoke Swedish as their first language, and my brother and I fell in when we were born. So so we used the Swedish word to strive for the name of the company, and that came from even Kana, the name of the first software company we started, 
also was from a Swedish, a derivative of a Swedish word. And that had worked well, so we figured we'd try it again. Uh, it just seemed like a good good karma. That's great. So what were the what challenges um, do you recall from the first two years of of starting Strava? What were what were kind of the biggest challenges to getting it getting it going, getting it to um, into the hands of athletes? Yeah, well, the first one was we um, since Mark and I are not uh, though we've started software companies, we're not software engineers ourselves. We we pulled together a, a founding team, uh, including some software engineers. None of us were mobile engineers. Nobody knew anything about um, mobile software development. And if you look today, that's the predominant way people find Strava is they find our apps in the app stores. And so the earliest days, people had to go buy a Garmin GPS device. That was, I think, about the only thing that would upload data to Strava. Now, 400 different devices upload to Strava using our open API. And there is a really strong ecosystem. But in the early days, there was so much friction to get the person to even be able to use Strava to track a workout, to be able to have the experience of connecting with other people around your workout and building community, that sense of team uh, through the experience. So if I look back on it, we should have started with a team of mobile developers. <laughs> uh, although we're very thankful, I'm very thankful for the team we had. And so, yeah, so we had to, we had to sort of go through that early phase of, of realizing uh, we need to build a whole mobile engineering team uh, to be able to develop some apps that, um, that can actually be found in the app stores. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people didn't used to run with their iPhones either, right? Or or mountain bike or do any activity of choice that was seen as like, I'm going to break the device. Yeah. But I feel like that's shifted. And, you know, people don't need um, a specialty watch or, you know, a Garmin watch or something to be an athlete with, um, you know, that does rather, rather long and complicated um, things that they like to share with their network on Strava. I wonder what's, where's the chicken and egg there in terms of Strava's relationship with the athlete um, and the way they interact with their phones and their devices. The phone is a is an interesting piece of hardware, right? It's got such versatility in some ways. It can, you know, it can actually act, work as a phone, but most often it's a camera, it's a video recorder, it's something that tracks with GPS. It does all these things pretty well, and so its versatility, its Swiss Army knife nature, is is makes it useful. But I think what we see is a lot of people will maybe start or onboard into Strava using their phone, but as they understand more that, hey, I really enjoy this experience and tracking what I do to be active and I can track over 40 different activity types on Strava. And so more and more, I'm seeing how I'm using Strava to be the, the record of my active life, the where I tell the stories of being active with my friends and family. And, and then people graduate to getting a device that might be more suited for tracking a workout. So move away from the Swiss Army knife to a specialty device, you still probably carry your phone for some things uh, just for the sake of connectivity, for the sake of uh, recording the photos and video and, and so forth. But you're going to be tracking with a, a wristwatch or a bicycle computer of some kind. And so that just is a sign of more commitment and investment in being active. It's a positive thing for, uh, I think, for a lot of people is that when they make that shift, they realize this is something they want to keep doing. Tell me about... Um the social network aspect of Strava. Now, it's fascinating to me that that for you was always baked into the idea that it was going to be for a team, for people to be able to share their their journey, their story. Uh, but that's like, you know, as someone who's written a book about Reddit, that's, that's a kind of scary thing to venture into building a social network. And it's something that takes a lot of consideration to do right. Now, what I've seen from my friends and family's use of Strava is that 
it's one of the least toxic, uh, if not the least toxic social network out there because it's all people encouraging each other in a niche way um, and and sharing kind of a shared goal. What kind of considerations had to go into building that and creating its spirit and maintaining it as a healthy place? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, what we say is that sports has always been social. Um, so sports itself is inherently geared around you and others. Um, if you think back to the ancient Olympic Games, it was a realization that civilization likes to celebrate from time to time the idea that we move, that we move and we might see who's fastest, strongest. Um, but the whole point of it is to celebrate movement and do it together. So that social nature to sport is what Strava really was built around. We didn't set out to create a social network online. We create, We wanted to create something that would make the time you spend being active mean more because you can connect with other people the same way you could when we felt we were on the team at the boathouse, that connection with other people, that was the essential piece of what motivated us. So what I think is really the key to Strava's positivity, the joy you have of being in that experience, why you have that sense that this is additive to your life, is because it focuses on something that is joyful, which is movement, activity, the best part of your day, some aspect about how you're, you've spent some time uh, investing in yourself, enjoying the, the idea of putting something back on your body through movement. And that, I think, is an essential piece if we're going to see Strava be here for the next 100 years, which that's our, our goal is to be a 100-year brand and be if someone can start using Strava in their teens and 20s and use it all the way to, to the, their 80s and 90s. My mom is 92 and tracks her walks on Strava in Stockholm every day. That requires us to keep it positive. It has to be additive to your life. And we do that, I think, by making the experience really reinforce that it's about the activity. It's about the act of movement. And that's what you're interacting with other people around. Yeah, I find that the way most people use it, too, though, is a very kind of more limited social sphere um, of peers who are interested in what they're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm curious whether you think that as you try to grow to a billion users, whether there's something key about keeping spheres small and keeping um, sort of a limited reach to any individual. I mean, I know that on other social networks, you know, the the sheer trouble of it, the, the harassment and, and pain of other ne social networks comes with scale. Where's your thinking there? Yeah, the way we look at this is, first, it's about activity and movement. Second, it's, you're right, that we build a pretty concentrated experience with others. It's like you you have close relationships with a relatively small number of people on Strava. It's not thousands or, or hundreds of people. It's typically from 10 to 100 people that you follow or are followed by. And most of those are people that you have a reason why they're important to you and you're important to them. So there it's a more concentrated or it's a more close uh, network. Uh, that's number one. But then at the same time, there are people in Strava, uh, elite athletes, um, influencers, people who are just contributing interesting content that you might also follow. And there it's more like that's a smaller set. That's not the predominant thing you're doing is, is being there to watch what they do to be active. But that's an ing important ingredient to what makes Strava something you want to have in your life as an active person. The third thing and this is a real important one, is the business model. We don't sell ads. Our goal is not to keep you in the experience scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. We benefit when you are motivated to be active and upload because our business model is a subscription. The best of Strava is available through our subscription. And when you look at that as the way in which we grow as a business, we can then, by making Strava add to your life and be positive and help you achieve your 
whatever it is you want, either more fun, more adventure, uh, more performance out of being active, if the Strava subscription helps you do that, you're going to be glad that you're, you're a subscriber. And we can reinvest that revenue back into making the experience, the actual experience for you better instead of the experience for advertisers because there aren't any on Strava. That's not our business model. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, let's talk about Strava, uh, the company itself. Um, as you started to grow, um, I imagine that your company culture veered toward um, athletes, people interested in physical activity. Is that true? And and how did you cater to employees' uh, needs and desires and passions as well? Yeah, so we have a really fantastic team of about 400 people at Strava today, and it's grown in the last two years, sort of doubled in, the, in size over the last two years during the pandemic. And yet we still have an incredible, strong uh, sense of culture built around our company values, the Strava ABCs, anti-racism, authenticity, balance, commitment, craftsmanship, and camaraderie. If you met Strava and you had lunch with Strava, that's what you would hopefully come away saying, what's Strava like? Oh, it's like the ABCs. It's like these words. Um, and we've been able to do that, I think, in large part because people come in understanding that we're working on something really positive in people's lives where we want to help people be more active. And that is not about being the best athlete in the world. It's about wherever you are in your journey of wanting to be active, Strava is there to support you. And your goal might simply just to go from working out a couple times a month to getting exercise on a, on a weekly basis. That could be a great objective and Strava can support that. Or your goal could be, you know, to run your fastest 5K or half marathon time. And so Strava has that breadth. And, and a lot of the employees are just, regardless of their athletic ability or what, where they are in their journey, they, they love to see that joy in our customers reflected back in all the comments we see on social media, the ways in which they contact us and tell us what we mean to them in their lives. So that's, I think, a really big part of the how the ABCs translate into the employees, the team feeling that sense of we're here, we're building a great business, it's going to be successful, but uh, we're bringing joy to people's lives. So we can bring joy to a billion people's lives over the next decade. That's a great mission. And people can really get behind that. I want to talk about the pandemic. I want to talk about this fast growth, but you say bringing joy to people's lives. You also sort of bring safety. Like when my husband goes for really long runs and he's got his Strava on and sends me the link, like that is the best way of tracking him. Far better than, you know, the iPhone's own tracking. So that's really cool too. We can't do this, what we do, without trust. Remember back when we were trying to pitch the idea of the virtual locker room, what did that web development company say? Oh, people won't share personal information with complete strangers. It's true. They won't. But give them the tools for privacy, the way that they can set up their following-follower relationships, and then they will. you're enabling them to be willing to share, be willing to be open with that set of people. And in, you're, you're speaking of uh, Strava Beacon, which is a a way for anyone being active to share a live link to where their location is on a map to any any trusted contact. And it, it gives you a peace of mind and can be a part of keeping people feeling like now that they know that that link exists, you know, if someone's watching you, following you along, that enables them to go out and be active. It actually gives them the confidence that this is going to go well. I've got, I've, someone's got my back. When we come back, I'll talk with Michael about the personal trauma that led him to step away from Strava. But first, a quick break. 
You're growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So, Michael, you, um, you were CEO for years, and then you took a pause on that, um, and now you're back as CEO. So tell me about those transition times and what caused them and, and sort of what, what it meant to you. Um, and, I, and I also want to get into, start thinking about how your leadership style has changed over the years. Yeah, we've been around since 2009. You know, we started, uh, and Mark and I were working on the concept even before that. So to be able to, to sort of stay with it, you have to be resilient and flexible in the face of unexpected things. And I was CEO from 2010 to 2014. And the reason I stepped down and Mark took the role and I, I took a, a more supportive role for him was my uh, wife was diagnosed with a terminal illness in 2013. Um, she had breast cancer in, in 2004, uh, again in 2006, and it came back and had metastasized. And so in the last years of her life, she passed away in 2017. I was blessed in that I could stay connected to Strava in uh, a flexible capacity. Mark could take on the role of CEO and run the company and did a great job. We grew under his leadership and um, we thrived. So then again, we both looked at our sort of our capacity to run the company at that time in 2016 or so. I, I was caring for Anna. Mark was caring for his family and also said, you know, like, what does Strava need? And we went and looked for external an external CEO to come in. And um, that person ran the company for a couple of years. And in 2019, external forces again sort of pointed the direction that we should return to the founders running the company. And Mark and I stepped back in and at the end of 2019, me as CEO, he as chairman. So in that journey, we've learned a lot. Companies changed a lot. The needs are different. And so that's where, if I'm going to be successful in the role, I can't run it the same way I did when we were 50 people. Now that we're 400, it has to be different. And the biggest difference in my style is relying on my team. Though I could jump to, here's an idea. I need to let's say, what what ideas do you have? Um, you know, like, What's on your mind is this way I start every uh, conversation uh, instead of telling them what's on my mind. That may be the simplest way to put it, which is like, get get the people in the room to start talking and um, they'll let you know when they need you. Yeah. <laughs> they'll let you know when they need your opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it is a huge change from 50 to 400. And that's a point where people start to feel a little more anonymous in a large organization. Yeah. 2019 was, uh, you only had a little bit of time right before the pandemic started, um, which, you know, meant a, a big shift in how work happens. But for Strava also, it meant a lot of people turning to the outdoors and to um, their own health and and a huge growth in users. You had like a million more users than average in April and, and May of 2020. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So it, in the early days of the pandemic, it was tough to know how things were going to go. We, we, we saw a lot of shifts in the way people lived their lives, and it wasn't really clear which industries were going to find a really challenging road ahead during the pandemic and or how long that would last and then which industries or sectors would see growth. The fitness space and connected fitness saw tremendous growth. And Strava, if you think about what people were looking for in the during the pandemic, it was the sense of they lost physical connection with people. They wanted community. They also lost 
the daily activity of, of just moving around in their daily lives was really constrained. So they sought out physical activity. So community and physical activity. Strava was um, well positioned to serve them. And we've really focused on that as the mission for uh, 2020, 2021 was help people through this moment when there are so many challenges in the rest of your life. Can Strava be a place where you can find some release, some sense of uh, connection and, and joy in a very challenging time? So as you point out, we were growing about a million a month, new registered users a month uh, prior, you know, leading into the pandemic. We, at the peak in, in April and May of 2020, we're growing by 3 million a month. So three times our growth rate, you know, it's settled back down to about one and a half to 2 million a month at this point, but it's still much bigger than it was before the pandemic. And one of the reasons is simply that as we get bigger, we have more word of mouth. That's the way we grow. We don't do any paid acquisition to speak of. And it's what just one one person who's finds Strava and finds what it can mean in their lives, telling another, and so forth. So, the pandemic was a that existential question was answered in the first few months, saying this will be a driver for our growth. How do we channel that back into building more things for athletes to enable them to get through this moment and then be the conversation that they tell their friends about, to, so it, it can drive that flywheel of growth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and how did you as a company respond? What were the challenges that you faced in those those months? Well, it, you know, in the beginning, you, you you can't create anything good if, if you can't take care of your own people. And so we really focused internally to start and said, you know, what changes do we need to make for our team to f- have the strength and the capacity to be able to continue to operate? So that, in, that involved making sure people had more time to take care of probably people in their lives, their children, other people in their families, because they were now hunkering down for who knows how long. We created programs for people to make sure they could set up office space at home, they could get their kids taken care of with um, with tutoring programs if they needed it. It was like, there were a lot of different ways in which we responded internally, because we knew that if we, if we didn't take care of our own team first, we couldn't expect great things to come out of how what they could do for our community. Once we felt we had shored up the company's capacity to execute. Then we looked at things like, let's develop content for people who are training indoors. We saw amazing ways in which our community responded to constraints on their ability to move. Lockdowns in certain places were pretty extreme. So people were doing all sorts of interesting ways to stay active, like rooftop marathons. We saw on the rooftop of apartment buildings, people doing 26.2 miles. Oh, nuts. <laughs> and this was, you know, this was a sign that there's just, you know, the human spirit is uh, indomitable. And uh-huh. we tried to create uh, more content to help people find the motivation to be active, even if the conditions were not ideal. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, and and you've, um, you've grown quite a bit. Um, you still have multiple headquarters or is the staff virtual now? How are you treating the, the future of work? Yeah, yes and yes. Our headquarters are in San Francisco, in uh, 2018, we opened an office in Denver, Colorado. We've had an office in Bristol, UK for since 2015. We've also now opened offices in Dublin, Ireland, in Paris, France, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Tokyo, Japan. And so we have small teams in, in many of those places, not big teams. Dublin is going to be a major center. Bristol is already pretty big. But also the reality is a lot of people are still choosing to work from home. Uh, we've given people choice. And that has felt like the right thing to do in the face of uncertain waves of the pandemic. And if at all, what we're trying to do is encourage people that feel comfortable to come start using the office one day a week, twice a week, 
and see what that brings up for you. Is that a positive experience? How might we make that a more positive experience over time? So we haven't mandated anything, but we're trying to encourage through a number of different benefits you, you get when you come to the office, like lunch on Wednesday. That's always a draw. You know, there's time on Wednesday to get together as a group to go for a run or a walk. So that Wednesday workout. So those are the kind of practices that will help people get over the friction of not going to the office that developed over the pandemic. You've you wired your life around working from home and therefore it's just harder to get to the office. But if we can draw people in, they might learn that there's actually some really good things that come out of it. For me personally, the best thing that comes out of going to the office is I start to like my apartment more. <laughs> it sounds like you give employees the benefit of the doubt um, when it comes to making the decisions about their workspace or when it comes to having a meeting and asking them the question first, you know, what's on your mind? What tips would you have for other leaders to sort of adopt that mindset and be be kind of so respectful of your employees, make them feel seen? Well, the starting point is it's just a, a lot less work if you're not, I guess, call it micromanaging or if you're you're expecting more out of your team. It's just a lot less work for you if you're the, regardless of your level of leadership, and so, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, why aren't you doing that? You know, is it you just don't have signals that it would be uh, successful and, and then go back to like, why is that? You know, keep asking the question why, you know, it goes back to maybe the, the basic principle is if you hire talented individuals who want to make a difference and they believe in the mission of your of your company, the why behind your company, don't hold them back by limiting what they can do to contribute. Give them more opportunity. Ask that, that question of what's on your mind. How do you see it? What would you do next is an opportunity for them to go way beyond what you were thinking would be the best next move. That's a, just, a, I think, a basic principle of what hiring great people means is that you they have unlimited potential. And this is you know, maybe the, my philosophy is that the human condition is everybody is born with incredible potential. And unfortunately, the world rarely lets you realize your full potential. And so if I'm going to you know, have a, a company that I'm running and I'm, I'm a part of, Mark and I both share this philosophy, is that Strava should be a place where you can do your best work. It should be the place where we have removed the constraints on your potential. We've enabled you to do more than you ever felt possible. Do we get it right every time? I, no, I'm sure we don't, but we strive to do it. We strive for that kind of an experience. So, And when we do that well, and do that well regardless of your lived experience or you know where you went to school or what your position is in the company, we, we see great things happen. And that's been our experience over now many companies and you know many years of working. That's fantastic. Um, Michael, I have a kind of niche question. I saw that um, since 2020, uh, Strava has been making its data available for free to governing bodies and local transit authorities. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and if you have any ideas of what that data was used for or whether it's uh, provoked change um, in any kind of local transit systems? Sure. Yeah, this is a part of Strava called Strava Metro. And at its core, it's the largest database of human-powered movement in the world for city planning. We came up with Strava Metro in 2014, 2015, based on the idea that if you aggregate all the information about how people move through cities by bike and foot that people are recording on Strava, it could be a powerful tool to help city planners, advocacy groups, um, anyone interested in questions around human mobility in, in cities, answer simple questions like, um, how should people move from one part of the city to the other? Where should we put the bike lane? How wide should it be? What's the scale of, of utilization today? And how do we want to shift that in the future? 
And so the reason we made it free starting in 2020 was simply that this data was too valuable, too good um, to help people make better decisions that would enable movement to keep it constrained by who had the ability to pay for it. So now it, we created a new format for it. It's available as a web-based planning tool, and it's used by thousands of different organizations around the world. You have to apply to use it. It's not available for anybody, but you have apply to use it. And if your use case is to enable better decision-making for urban mobility, or, or not even urban, even it's being used in parks and off-the-grid locations as well, then we want to support that. We feel that in the long run, that's really great for our business. It gets people to be more active. Um, eventually, it will all come back to benefit our core mission of getting people more active. But at, right now, what we see is some of, it's helping to solve some of the uh, most vexing problems in the world around things like congestion in cities or environmental racism and the, the inequity with which um, you know, the historical infrastructure in a city, cities around the world, have been distributed to benefit people uh, with more power, more money, and not serve people who are underrepresented in government and less privileged. So it's really, I think, a powerful example of how uh, Strava data, when aggregated and anonymized, so it's not revealing anyone's particular location or track or anything, when it's aggregated and anonymized, can be power can can be, can be used to help locate um, everything from where the bike lane should be, uh, what happens when you invest in a new piece of infrastructure, how does mobility change, track all sorts of things that that previously just couldn't get answers to. As a company, do you do any of that analysis yourself, or do any of the advocacy for different cities' transit infrastructure changes? Yeah, we, we, we do help them. We have a, a team on the Metro team that helps the people use the tool um, that uh, we want to make sure people are successful when they're, even though it's free to use, it still takes you investing time, your people's time to be able to use the tool. So we do have a group that's there to help. Uh, we don't go into consultative services, we, but we do work with other, for example, consultants who are hired by the city planners to help to use this tool. So our objective is to get it to be used and used for the right purposes so we provide some basic, everything from um, white papers that explain how other cities have used the tool in the past, and then also have people on our team who are there to help answer questions and help people with making the most of the tool. That's great. Um, so, Michael, one more question. If, if you're going to build a 100-year brand, what else do you imagine Strava would be or would include in 100 years? Well, so we're, we're focused on helping people li- live a more full and meaningful life. And today, the predominant thing we focus on is movement. As we think about what enables movement is you have to have some other basics. For many people, having some time to be active in the outdoors is a luxury. So I think what over 100 years, we have to look more holistically at who are we serving? Where, what, are their real, what are their real needs that might be preventing them from activity? And that goes to just basic needs of around wellness, I think about the basics of health and wellness is not defined as the absence of disease. It's you've enabled people to live in a way that supports their own well-being and nutrition, sleep, uh, stress. These are all factors that we want to be able to help people understand and make better choices around and support each other in. I think community is always at the core of this. Uh, We have found time and time again that you and your data is good. You put it in the context of the community, and it's amazing what it unlocks for you. It helps you so much. So I think this, the basic building blocks of Strava as a community 
Um, we will extend that to its Strava is, today is the active community. I think it's the wellness community over the next hundred years. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today. Christine, it's been such a pleasure. Great questions. <laughs> Thank you. I loved it. Enjoyed talking with you. After speaking with Michael, what stuck with me is that he's been so resilient in his journey. And by that, I mean personally and in building the company of his dreams, and then in becoming a leader to the 400 employees of Strava today. I love that he said, you can't create anything good if you can't take care of your own people. But really, it's a lesson that he applies to his daily leadership style and his approach to supporting customers, too. When it comes to the people he hires, he looks for talent and then strives to eliminate obstacles to the individual's full potential. I love that thought because it's full of optimism and truth, too. So much in the world can limit or cut down an individual's passions and potential. And striving to do the opposite and to nurture them is not just respectful of a wide range of humans and their abilities, but it's also a really refreshing way to view the role of a leader. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas for founders you'd love to hear from, drop me a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Or you can let me know directly on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who has easily logged 26.2 miles just pacing around his bedroom today, is Joshua Christensen. Our production assistant is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. <laughs>